But please um, turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 87. Our text for this evening is actually the psalm right after our scripture reading this evening. Um, psalm 87. We are going to read the entire uh, psalm. Excuse me. Psalm 87. Now the word of the Lord. A psalm of the sons of Korah. A psalm. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. Amen. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word. Let us now pray. Our almighty God and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you, Lord, to have a day of rest, a day where we enjoyed fellowship, time worshiping together with one another. Uh, Lord, but we thank you that you have brought us back here this evening. Lord, we pray that it will just be a blessing to us, that it would glorify you, Lord, and that Christ would be exalted. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us even where we have fallen short on this day, that you would help us to see your, your glory, your truth, and your mercy. Uh, Lord, but as we come to your word, help us to not only just hear the word preached, but to take it in and apply it to our lives. Uh, Lord, we ask this all in your son's precious and matchless name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, congregation, I want to ask you a question. What comes to mind when you hear the word grandeur? I know it's not a word we hear often, but what comes to mind when you hear the word grandeur? Uh, maybe something big or majestic, something that's grand. Um, to help spark your imagination really quick, I want to give you a general definition or a sense of the word. Um, generally speaking, we can define grandeur as, as greatness or something that is magnificent, vast, or boundless. It is the quality or state of something that is being grand. You can think of just looking out, um, I believe, yes, it is to the west over there, and seeing Pikes Peak. It's something that has, it's grand, it has grandeur. But I want to specifically talk about it tonight as the quality or combinations of a quality in an object which elevate or expand the mind and excites pleasurable emotions in the person who views or contemplates it. And I'm going to repeat that. Grandeur is the quality or combination of qualities in an object which elevates or expands the mind and excites pleasurable emotions in the person who views or contemplates it. And again, like I said, we can think of the mountains. Uh, we live in a beautiful place to see this. We can just go outside and look at the jagged peaks. But we can, sometimes we're in deep, lush valleys that are super green, especially now, this time of year. And if you ever have the chance when you're driving down 70 and you get to go through the Glenwood Canyon, you can see this grandeur of the canyon itself. 
Maybe you can think of the Grand Canyon. I know a lot of us have visited or at least seen it in pictures, and we, we see this vast and boundless view of the Colorado River way down deep in this deep, deep canyon. But what it does is it elevates, it expands our mind, and it excites pleasurable emotions within us. We, we can say it makes us speechless or it's breathtaking. It leaves us in awe. I often think about when my kids go to the zoo, the things that they see, the animals they see, they look at them with with complete awe. They see the grand majestic elephants and the tigers and the lions. They have even seen moose out in the wild when we lived in Eagle. But it's something to them that is grand. It's full of this quality or combination of qualities that elevate or expand their minds. They're less speechless in it all. So I want us to think about that. What is it? What are our thoughts when it comes to the heavenly? When it comes to the heavenly things, or the divine, when we turn our thoughts to God, are our thoughts of God thoughts of grandeur? Are they thoughts that elevate or expand our mind? Are they thoughts that excite pleasurable emotions in us? More specifically, what about his church? What about when we come to the the doctrine of the church or how we view the church? Does this excite pleasurable emotions in you? Does this cause you to to be lost in awe and be speechless? We need to think about this when we think of God's spiritual Zion. We need to think about this when we come to the communion of the saints. Are we filled with grand thoughts from Lord's Day to Lord's Day? Or when when we entered this morning or even tonight into corporate worship, Did the thoughts of coming into God's presence, did the thoughts of being here this evening, did they expand your mind or or raise your mind to higher thoughts of God? Thoughts of praise and pleasurable emotions and sweet communion. Did we as the inhabitants of Zion shout and sing for joy because it is great in our midst as the Holy One of Israel? Is that that our, our emphasis when we come to worship? Are we shouting and praising the Lord? Does he excite us and, and cause us to want to just be here and to shout and let loose in, in, in true worship and worship that he has given us? I often think of Isaiah 6, and I, w- I want to use this as an illustration, when he was caught up into the throne room of God. When he was in the presence of God, he was captivated. He was in awe and amazement at the grandeur of the glory of God and his holiness. So much so that it caused him to say, Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. But he saw and stood and seen those that were saying, Holy, holy, holy. And it is psalms like the one that we're in tonight, or or psalms like uh, that we sung this evening, Psalm 122, or even 119. It's psalms like these that help orient us into a proper understanding and anticipation of worship. And that's what I want to do tonight. As we open up Psalm 87 this evening, I want to consider primarily primarily this. Our glory in Zion expressed in God drawing sinners into communion with himself. So basically just our glory in Zion, but I want to show this expressed in God drawing sinners into communion with himself. And I want to look at this under three points. And you have them on the back of your bulletin if you want to write down or take notes, but it's first our glorious foundation, second our glorious redemption, and third our glorious communion. 
our foundation, our redemption, and our communion. So let us first consider this evening our foundation. Again, close to this morning, but um, as we look at this, I hope to just expand upon that point. But our glorious foundation, verses 1 through 3, We'll read them again. It says, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. To give a little context of this, it's helpful for us to remember this psalm was written after the Jews are returning out of Babylon. Uh, they're, they're returning from the Babylonian uh, captivity. Uh, this was a miserable and distressing con- condition in which the church was placed. Um, this would have been a time that led many to despondency. Um, and kids, to be despondent is to, to be without hope or courage. It's to lose hope or courage. And, and to help you kind of understand this, I want to take it to when I was your age, I used to get really scared. Like if I got lost from my parents in a marketplace or a store. And I got separated from them. I'd get really anxious. And I would get really hopeless and scared. Um, I would start to feel despondent. The great thing is my parents were always there and I was able to find them. Uh, But much like that time for them, when the Israelites were coming back into Israel, when they were turning from the Babylonian exile, they were scared. They were without hope. Uh, they, They, in a sense, lost all faith. And they were anxious. So it was a time that led the church into despondency. According to the, the psalmist here, he uses references of establishing of God's city on the mount. Um, and he uses this imagery of God loving the gates of Zion. And what this does is it speaks of God's restoration. It's the promise of God's restoration and in a wonderful and incredible manner. There would be nothing more res- desirable uh, for the, the church or the Old Testament church than to, to be reckoned among the number of the church's members. The imagery of Mount Zion would have, would have conjured thoughts in their minds. It would have brought thoughts into their minds of God's presence and his protection. Uh, psalm 68, if we were to, to go back to that psalm, it states that uh, this is the hill, Zion is the hill, that God desires to dwell in forever. So for the Jews and even for us, what they were seeing is that this is a place where God's presence and God's protection would have been for them. It's a place that God desired to dwell in forever. Again, we could look at Psalm 132 that's where the Lord declares, This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. Again, speaking of Mount Zion, speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem or Jerusalem in this context. But it's God's habitation that is the very thing that renders this mount to be perfect, to be a perfection of beauty and joy for the whole earth. It's not the mountain itself. It's not the beauty of the mountain itself. It's the one who dwells there. It's because God is in that mountain that makes it perfect, that gives it its beauty and its joy. Jerusalem was also, and Zion were also the places where God set his kings. These were where the thrones of the houses of David were. And we even sung that in Psalm 122 earlier. Uh, but these, this is where God set his king. Jerusalem was a, a place where, where God established his worship. It was where the tribes would often make their pilgrimages each year to sacrifice to the Lord. It was here that the people of God would enjoy communion with him. 
the cheer that they would uh, raise their voices of praise, uh, that, the, that they could be heard, that they could worship and exalt their Lord. Jerusalem was the city wherein God settled, where he set up thrones and where he, he, he had the Old Testament forms of worship. But throughout Scripture, we, we see this as, as the dwelling place of God's house or holy, of the holy city. Uh, the beauty of our text here, knowing again that it was written upon this return from the Babylonian captivity. It's written before they actually rebuilt the temple. But even more than just being prophetic to that rebuilding of the temple, it's prophetic as it is fulfilled in Christ. It's prophetic in nature. It was looking back. It wasn't looking back to a physical location. Rather, it's looking forward to a spiritual side. It's looking forward to to Christ being the head of his church and the church being that spiritual Zion. It's the, the city of the greater king and the greater David. Now as we look at these first three verses under the head of foundation, I want to focus on two particulars. The first is the foundation itself. In verse read, we want on the, in verse read, in verse one, we read, on the holy mountain stands the city he founded. And the, the KJV actually, to me, renders this text more literal as it states simply, his foundation is in the holy mountains. So we have on the holy mountain stands in the city he founded, but rather I think that the Hebrew and the KJV get it, the KJV gets the Hebrew better, his foundation, as I've already kind of stressed, his foundation is in the holy mountains. But it's his foundation. And I want us to think about it for this, to set this up. When we, we look at a structure or a building, what does it need? It needs a foundation. Um, the very school that we are, are meeting in tonight, our homes, uh, these are things that would not stand if they did not have a foundation. Kids, you can also think of, I used to play with Lincoln Logs, a little bit with Legos, but your Legos, you can't build a tall tower with Legos unless that Lego tower has a strong foundation. It needs a foundation. So just like our homes, just like our, the school we're in, just like our churches, just like any building we go in, it will not stand. It's not able to stand unless it has that strong foundation. And the same it is for the church. As we come, the spiritual Zion needs its strong foundation. That's how it is for the city of God. In Isaiah 28:16, we read this. We read about the city's foundation where the Lord uh, declares. He's speaking of Christ here. He says, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. We see that Christ is this, stri- is, is this tried stone. Christ is proven. He's reliable. He's a precious cornerstone. He he is extremely valuable, fundamental, and necessary. Without Christ, none of this would exist. And without that cornerstone and a foundation, that foundation would not exist, especially in those times. The believer has a sure foundation in Jesus Christ. It's Christ who is our foundation, who's solid and who's stable. Again, in Psalm 118, we read, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Again, a reference to Christ in which is quoted in the Gospels speaking of himself, that Christ quotes. He's speaking of himself as the stone that the leaders of Israel rejected. But he's exalted by God to the honor of being the cornerstone of the heavenly Zion. 
It's Christ upon which his people are built. And it's, and it's his exaltation that we are built upon him. It's quoted by Peter in Acts 4 and again in the first epistle, in, Paul's, uh, in Peter's first epistle in chapter 2, in speaking of believers. He says that we are living stones that are built upon the chief cornerstone, Christ. Uh, Paul, again, in his epistle to the Ephesians in 2.19-20, writes, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple, into the Lord. You see, it's Christ who is the chief cornerstone underneath the entire structure of God's church. He's the only foundation for the city. We must not miss, miss this because as we, we talked about this morning and even in the second hour, there's salvation in no one else. There's salvation in no one else. It's only in Christ. He alone is our hope and our stay. If we seek to build upon anything else, our structure will fall. Christ truly is the only foundation. This is where we must heed the, the parable of the builders in Matthew 7. We can't be like the foolish man who builds, upon, who builds his house upon the sand. Right? The winds come and the rains beat down and the floodwaters come and what happens to the man who built his house upon sand? It washes away. Rather, we should be like the wise and build upon the rock. We need to make sure that our foundation is nothing else but Jesus Christ the Lord. And we can't be tempted because this world offers a lot of substitutes. It wants us to build our lives upon uh, financial uh, prosperity uh, or stability. It wants us to build upon reputation. It wants us to build upon uh, either what we have or what we do or our careers. And we can be so tempted in our lives to just build up and to seek other people's approval and to make a foundation for ourselves that is truly nothing but sand. It will just wash away. We also must be careful in the Christian life because a lot of times we can build our foundation upon our own works, upon the things that, that we think will merit our salvation before God or at least make us look better before others. But our merits and our works, our knowledge and the things that we claim to have outside of Christ or we're not giving Christ the, the, the glory for, these things are nothing but sand if they're not built upon the foundation, if they're not built upon Christ. And this is important also because it'll be Christ who carries you through the tempest of the storm. When the struggles come in your life, when, when all seems to fall out from under you, when you seem as if you have no hope, or that despondency, as I talked about, come, or I talked about earlier, comes in your life, the only thing, the only thing that will carry you through this will be Christ. It'll be a, being built upon that firm foundation. We must make it our aim. You must make it your aim. You can't just speak. I want to speak also for myself, but directly to you. You must make it your aim to daily look to Christ, to fix your gaze upon Him, to make Him your meditation. And this is something we need to ask ourselves. We need to ask, is Christ truly my only foundation? Am I grabbing hold of and am I cleaving to this to, to Christ, the only foundation of the church. You need to ask yourselves that. You need to meditate upon Him. And we need to must forsake anything else that we think we can build upon and truly grab hold of Christ. And this leads me to my second particular under foundation. 
or our glorious foundation, which is the structure. So we have the foundation, but now we have the building. We have the structure. And in this case, we have the spiritual Zion church. In verses 2 through 3, we see references to the gates of Zion. Well, how I love the gates of Zion and, that, and to the city of God. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. These are references to the church. In the new covenant, the, the, the church is God's spiritual Zion. It's his living temple among the people. We are the temple of God. So Paul tells us in Corinthians, he's not speaking to just the individual believer. He's saying all to all of us, we are the temple of God. We are the church. In these verses, when we come to them, we see that, that God loves the gates of Zion. And he actually says this in contrast, more than the tents of Jacob. And what he's saying here, or the dwelling places of Jacob, I, I'm, I'm a KJV guy, I just say tents there. But in the ESV it says dwelling places. But the point is, what God is making here, when he's saying, I love the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places of Jacob, is he, he loves when the church is together. It's not just about the individual believer. It's not that he doesn't love Jacob. It's not that he doesn't love the individual. But he's saying, I love the church. I love where the church comes together to worship. And this is important in our day. And I'll get to that more in a minute. I don't want to jump jump ahead. But it's important that we see this. It's important we see the beauty and the glory of, of the spiritual Zion. We also see in Hebrews 12.22 that... Uh, I always want to say Paul, but the, the author teaches us that we as believers have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And we as believers. But what is significant is what is significant here is the church's descriptors. It's, it's what God says about us. In verse 2 we read that God loves us. Um, and this is where I was jumping ahead. This is particularly important in our day because there are professing believers. Many of we may many we may know many of them who are constantly tearing down or assaulting the church. That have either been hurt by the church or have had some problem with the church, and they want to they want to tear it down. And they're driven by autonomy that that self governs their rule. Um, they claim that they don't need the church. Uh, only relationship that they need is a relationship with Christ, not with with the body. Um, we, we really saw this in the last few years, especially with COVID. COVID made people comfortable staying at home and live streaming services rather than, than going to a gathered assembly. But we need to see, again, God loves the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places of Jacob. God loves the church. He loves his body, his bride, the communion of saints. This is the place he chose for his habitation. Now, I don't want to downplay families at all. Um, I am a firm believer that families uh, and homes of of Christians are little churches. Uh, They truly are the little churches that that build up and play into. I don't want to, to the the true church, the big church, the, the corporate church, I don't want to downplay private or family worship. These things are very important for the life of a Christian. That this is something we need to be doing. But God has promised a special presence to his church at her gatherings in a way that surpasses even private communion with God. 
And I, I said it the last time I was here as I was reading uh, Ephesians 2, but I mentioned John Owen and something that John Owen speaks about in one of his books, Communion with God, is he says that, that what we do on the Lord's Day, when we come together on the Lord's Day, this is where we experience the pinnacle of communion with God. When we gather together, it's not in an individual private worship, it's not even in family worship, the pinnacle of communion with God is seen on a Lord's Day when the church gathers together. And this is what I'm trying to stress here as we look at the foundation and the descriptors of this foundation. Now, the structure now. God loves the church. God loves the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places of Jacob. But I also want to mention before we move on that this is a place for our protection. It's a place where we have protection. Psalm 25, we sing it this morning, says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountain surrounds Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. The church is the ark of safety for the believer. Our confession in chapter 25 states this, that the church is the house and family of God out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Cyprian, early church father, said that one cannot have God as his father who does not have the church for his mother. I know that's often attributed to Calvin, but it is Cyprian. The church of Jesus Christ is more beautiful, it's more precious and holy than any other institution on earth. And it's sad to me that when the world looks upon us, they often see something weak, something frail, something that they could easily just smash over or push over, but it's not the truth. It's more beautiful, precious, and holy than any other institution on earth. Why? Because we have God dwelling in it. We have Christ as our foundation. And the structure is us, this communion of saints. And it's a place that God surrounds, loves, and protects. So we must love the church, serve the church. And if it is us, we must stop complaining about her, for she is the bride of Christ. And then finally tonight, I want to look at our second point, a glorious redemption. A glorious, well, our second, I'm sorry, I have three points. A glorious redemption. So I want you to, to turn your attention from the city and its foundation to now the individual, to the people living in it. Um, so we should consider now our, our glorious redemption. So we come to verses 4 through 6. We, we see a miraculous turn of events as the psalmist begins to show how God is populating his capital city of the Jewish nation with people of various Gentile nations. I don't know if you caught that as we were reading through it, but he mentions names like Rahab and Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. And he says, these, these will be born there. And what's particularly interesting is the people that are mentioned, all of these nations, in one way or another, have oppressed God's people. And it's beautiful because we see the expansive aim of God's redemption. It's the expansive aim of his redemption. Uh, it, it's God drawing sinners to himself. God is not going out to look for the righteous. He's not going out here. He's going out and bringing in those from Gentile nations who have attacked, who have oppressed the, the 
the, the Jewish church. Again, this is prophetic in nature. And to go through a few of these, just so you can see this point expressed, that Egypt uh, is, is poetically referred to here as Rahab, but Egypt, as we know, enslaved the Israelites for 400 years. And then we see Babylon mentioned. They captivated, captivated uh, Israel and held them in captivity for seven years. So both of these nations oppressed them. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of how much the Philistines were a thorn in the side of Israel. You can only think of the book of Judges. Right? Ezekiel 26, we read of Tyre uh, gloating at the fall of, of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. But even Cush mentioned here in her text, this is referring to Ethiopia. They were at fault. Because Cush was the father of Nimrod. We remember back in scripture. And Nimrod is the one who established the cities of Babylon. And this is helpful for us, for us to see because all of these nations led various and vicious attacks upon God's people. But now in our text, they're being brought in. They're being brought into the church of, of, of God. And it's important, too, that notice that it says they were born there. They were born there. Now, if you know anything about immigration or immigration laws or, or things that are people who are coming into our, our country, they go through a process of naturalization where they become a citizen. But they're not natural-born citizens. They have to go through a process to where they become naturalized. But they don't have that naturalization by birth. They don't have a birthright uh, to the country. And that's not at all, not at all what the Lord is doing here. And this is important for us to note because three times in our, our text tonight, it says they were born there. They were born there. Because this foreshadows for us Christ's teaching of regeneration. If you remember when Jesus is teaching Nicodemus in John 3, he talks about the radical necessity of being born again, being born from above. Christ says, without the Spirit caused new birth, you won't even be able to see, let alone enter the kingdom of God. So it's not a process of naturalization, it's a process of being born again. And for our text here, and for us today, we see, and it's important for us to note, that God, God reckons and records, as it says in verse 6, and registers the people, this one was born there. It shows us that God brings about the new birth. So that all of these citizens, all of these foreign nations from Egypt to Babylon became citizens of Zion, not by immigration, but by regeneration. And it's because, as we read, the Most High established them and uttered the words that they were born. And this should bring us great encouragement. Because as we look at our own lives, we look at... For those of us who may have uh, grew up uh, not knowing Christ our entire lives, we, we can say, I once was at enmity with God. I once was rebellious and may have oppressed the people of God, but God has a great love for me in drawing sinners to himself, and he causes me now to be born into that city. Or even as, as someone who, who may have grown up in the church and has never remembered a day outside of Christ, even when we are, are, are sinning, we're at enmity with God. Our sins show us our rebellious nature towards him and towards his promises. And great is he for forgiving us and showing us mercy, but it's also him and him alone who's drawn us to himself and said, you 
You were born here. You were born there. That new birth that we have causes us to be in this glorious spiritual Zion. God draws us to himself. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were at one time strangers and aliens. So we can all look and say, at one time in my life, apart from the graciousness of God, I've been just like the list of Gentile nations. I've been just like these people who oppress God's people. And it should humble us and give us a greater appreciation for the redemption that we have in Christ. But it should also make us bold in proclaiming the good news. If God can save me, if he can save you, if he can save the greatest of sinners, if he can make a list of nations that completely rejected and oppressed his people, and he can draw them to himself, and he can save them and cause them to be born again, he can do that for anyone. So we should be bold in our proclamation. We should be bold in our evangelism. We should be bold when we go out and preach the gospel. But it should also bring us to praise, which leads me to my final fantasy. It should bring us to praise. So lastly, I want to look at our glorious communion. The culmination of this psalm is worship and communion. So throughout, he establishes the city. He shows us that great foundation uh, and the structure that's built upon that foundation. And then we see the redemption of, of, of these wicked people, but we, we truly see the redemption of God drawing sinners to himself and building up and, and inhabiting that structure or that city. But it, it ends with praise. So we look at verse 7 again. It says, Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. However, when we look at this, we see that the glory of the city, its foundation, the newly born sinners, citizens cause worship. They cause people to worship. And what is their praise in the text? It says that all my springs are in thee. I want us to look at the language of this text as, as we go through it. What's the importance of all my springs are in thee? And what is the value of the spring? If you were in Israel at this time, water was scarce. And to be traveling without water and to, to need fresh water to drink would have been scarce. So they were often probably in the wilderness seeking out, out water, something to quench their thirst, one to satisfy them and to, to uh, help strengthen and encourage them. I don't know if you've ever been hiking and forgot water. I, I don't suggest you ever do it. Um, but there are places in Colorado, I, I used to live near a few, where you could hike up to the spring or along the hike there was a natural spring, a spring that you could come and drink. And that spring, if you forgot water, even if you didn't forget water, it was so valuable because when you got to it, you could just reach down, cup your hands, and drink fresh, natural water. It brought refreshing and renewal as you were walking along. So we need to see a value of a spring. And so when, when the church here is saying all of our springs are in you, they're essentially saying that everything we need to satisfy us, to refresh us and renew us, is found in you. And I want us to think very clearly, because this should remind us of a text in John 4, verses 10 through 14. When, when Jesus is meeting with the woman at the well, he identifies himself as the one who gives God's spiritual blessing living water. Right? 
Jesus used the fresh running water of the well to symbolize the overflowing life and joy that was found only by union with God through Christ and the Holy Spirit. This is what he's, what he's showing us. He's, he's using that, that imagery of the spring or of the well to say, this, this is the only thing that you are coming to now to, to refresh you or to revitalize you or to strengthen you. It, it's missing it. He uses that symbol to say, I am living water. Through me, you'll never thirst. And the thing we need to know is physical desires require repeated satisfaction. They can never fully satisfy us. Right? And I want to say that again because when we have physical desires, they can help us see spiritual desires. But that water that we drink at one time does not cause us to never thirst again. We're going to get thirsty. It's going to require repeated satisfaction. But not with Christ. Christ becomes the eternal source of vitality that satisfies the heart. It's in Him, a well of water springing, that, that we have in Him, is a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Right? We read that in Revelation 7, 15, uh, chapter 7, verses 15 through 17. Christ is a well of water. He's the one that springs up in us and everlast, into everlasting life. So when we look, as we come to a text like this, and we, we look at this great city, the foundation which is Christ, and as we look at the church in corporate worship and all of the promises and all of the blessings that we have in Christ, it should cause us to worship. It should cause us to say with the singers and dancers here, all of my springs are in you. All of my springs are in you. I want to close returning to Isaiah 6. So I want to I walk through this vision. If you remember in the beginning, I mentioned Isaiah 6 and the awe that Isaiah had when he was brought into the throne room of God. But the first thing that Isaiah noticed when he entered that throne room and he looked up was to see that God is absolutely holy, that God is sovereignly ruling from his gracious throne. And just as the, as the church and we come to see that our foundation is none other than God alone, we see that God is absolutely holy just as Isaiah saw when he looked upon the Lord that God is absolutely holy and he's sovereignly ruling Isaiah also noted that worshiping and serving him are essential if we were to go to the text and look at the seraphim everything that they did marked the holiness of the Lord and his desire to be served and worshipped second or third uh, Isaiah looked inside himself to see his own uncleanliness and unworthiness. And then third, he looked at God's altar to see the greatness of God's grace. The greatness of God's grace that had cleansed him and provided a cleansing and atonement for his sin. And then finally, he looked outside to the world in which uh, the Lord had sent him to preach. How does this relate? When we come to church and we look at all the things I've mentioned, at all the things that this psalm mentions, it mentions the city, it mentions the foundation, it mentions the church, it mentions the love that God has for his people, but it also, when the, the Lord sees, when Isaiah sees all this in his vision and he's looking at the Lord and seeing the holiness of the Lord, he's also seeing the, the promises and the salvation given from the Lord, as we see in uh, verses 4 through 6 here. But he goes out 
into the world and he preaches. Beloved, that's, that's what I want us, all of us to grow in is our love for the church, to desire to be built upon the foundation, to desire to be a part of the body, to worship with one another, to see the church advance and God's kingdom advance in the world. But we must also go out and, and go to the Philistias and the Tyres and the Cush and the Rahabs and the Babylons. We should proclaim the good news that can be theirs in Christ and, pre- and preach that God does draw sinners to himself. We also have the beauty of our substance of our entire worship being Christ. This psalm is prophetic. It's looking to all of these things that for the Jew would have pointed them back to the Old Testament, back to temple worship. We get to look forward to Christ. We get to look toward uh, the spiritual simplicity and heightened communion with God, the Trinitarian communion, communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as I already said, the grandeur of what we have is that this is the pinnacle. What we do here from Lord's Day to Lord's Day is the pinnacle of that communion. When we look upon those mountains, we should look upon them in all, but we should look upon this day and upon the worship that we have and the fellowship that we have, the preaching, the sacraments, the psalms, all of that, we should look upon it with far greater grand thoughts, vast thoughts. It should excite us and to, to cause us to praise and to worship our Lord. We must not seek a foundation anywhere else. We must build upon this one. We must see ourselves in Christ. We must see His promises. Know that He has saved us. And then we must worship as He calls us to worship. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, Lord, we do thank You. We thank You that You, Lord, from the very beginning have called out a people. You've you've called out a church to be in communion with you. Lord, we're so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us. That you stooped down to bring us in relationship with yourself. That you didn't just do this with an individual. We thank you for our individual salvation, Lord. You brought us into a church, into a covenant community. To be your people, to be your body, to be your city. Lord, we're so thankful for your presence here this evening. We're so thankful for your presence in our lives, the protection that you bring, this glorious communion that we not only have with you, but we have it with one another, the true communion of the Father, of you, Father, of the Son, and the Spirit. Lord, help us to grow in our love for this institution, to grow also for this as an organism that we see we are the body we are your spiritual Zion you have set your love upon us and help us to 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 grow as as a body to bring about also the, the redemption of sinners to advance your kingdom Lord let us show not only our love for the church inwardly among the church but outwardly to our neighbors and to our co-workers Help us to be bold in proclaiming this great truth. And Lord, help us as we come to worship. I know we all have our days where we struggle, Lord, but to focus and gaze upon your Son, to see the beauty and the glory and majesty of Christ, and the joy it is to come 
saved from our sin, to worship and to honor and glorify you and to fellowship with one another. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.